Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 450. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a packed show, two stories and a fact article. I'll tell you what's coming up then in today's show. First up is a little short bit of fiction on trial by Rachel Harp. Then it is the end of the month and we have Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. Then the main fiction is Rocket Surgery by Effie Cyberg. That is all coming in today's show. As usual, I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, before we get into it, we have well, one little thing. I'll not be here next week. Going to miss one week's show. Going on holiday and I don't want to kind of pre-record it and just have it set in a way. I just like to kind of sit down and do these things. So, it is not. there's going to be no show next week, but there's oodles here to keep you going until the week after. We're off to Portugal for a week. Family holiday there, yes. I'm stripping off to my speedos. <laughs> run, run for the hills. So, let's jump into the first story, and it is the short story, On Trial, by Rachel Harp. Originally appeared in Havoc number two. Last year, Writers of the Future contest finalist and two-time Silver Honourable Mention winner. Rachel is a Zeblon contest mystery thriller suspense novel winner for the Pikes Peak Writers and Novel Rocket Launchpad novel contest and grand prize winner as well. The stories have been published in Havoc Magazine and Chicken Soup for the Soul. This story is narrated by Setsi Umie. Setsi has spent a formative years in and out of dojos. She also trained in a monastery in rural China, China studying Taoism and swordplay. She is a member of the Codex and the Science Fiction Writers of America. While she dabbled in many, dabbled, dabbled in many arts, only writing and martial arts seem to have stuck. Find her at, and there's a little Twitter handle there, Katana Pen. Brilliant uh, little narration, Setsu. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. On Trial by Rachel Harp. Mallory Green's mugshot blazed across the digital courtroom wall. Wide eyes, thin black hair. A crack in the screen ran right through her image. The word defendant branded in red letters. She held her breath, hoping the sensors would miss her rising temperature. Her heart pounded. Would the sensors pick that up too? Mr. Kane faced the jury. As Miss Green walked by campus cameras, facial recognition alarms signaled police. We sit in this courtroom to decide her fate. Mallory clamped her hands around the steel seat. So she was in the area, had checked the social web. Who hadn't these days? As if he could read her mind, Kane looked at Mallory. A loose smirk unraveled across his face. Your Honor, he said, voice smooth like he'd done this a thousand times. Members of the jury, murder is not a dismissive offense. Kane pointed at the screen. The victim, Samantha Border, only 19. Samantha's smiling picture flashed on the wall. So innocent, so naive. A movie adaptation of her life played across the screen. The puppy she adopted licked her face. Her friends celebrating at graduation. Mother hugging her in the new dorm. They left out the part where Mallory had found Samantha sleeping with her boyfriend last week. When the last image faded, jurors hunched over their touchscreens, making notes. A hanging light flickered above the stand. A chair squeaked as one juror leaned forward. Kane clicked a button, and Mallory's image froze on screen. We also have Miss Green's profile. I object, Mr. Gibbons said. Finally, 
What had he been waiting for, for his nap to end? Mallory clenched her teeth to keep the words from escaping. The public defender winced when he stood and grabbed his robo-leg, as though some pain shot through his ancient body. My client had no knowledge she was being filmed. Overruled, Judge Daniels looked down from his perch. The law allows it. Proceed. Thank you, Your Honor, Kane said. The movie of Mallory's life played out, color flickering in and out on screen. The argument she'd been in last week with her boyfriend. The punk in the alley she bought illegal nanites from. A close-up of track marks on her arm? The brick in Mallory's stomach seemed heavier with each piece of evidence. How was she supposed to know they'd been following her? When it finished, the prosecutor smirked. I think you can see for yourself the kind of person Mallory Green is. Mr. Gibbons leaned over. Don't worry. Don't worry? Was he joking? One of the jurors stared at her with narrow, cat-slit eyes as she punched something into her screen. A verdict already? She hadn't heard all the evidence. Mallory shuddered. Kane strutted past the defense table, lips curled in a tiger's grin. I'd like to call our witness. A police officer took her place on the stand, a tarnished badge on her uniform, scuff marks on her shoes, a mile-wide frown across her face. Officer Arroway, the persecutor said, would you tell us about the police evidence? Certainly, she said in a deep, almost masculine voice. We pulled all of Miss Green's records, clubs she's been to, locations posted on social networks, texts, calls, that type of thing. And what did you learn? She arched a brow. Miss Green viewed the victim's social web page excessively. She ate lunch at the cafe across the street at the victim's house every day for a week, even ordered Miss Border's favorite meal. On the day in question, she made a call outside the victim's residence at 4 a.m. Kane rubbed his chin. Is that what triggered the alarm? No. It wasn't until a camera scanned her face on campus later that afternoon. Her stalking stats went through the roof. We knew we needed to bring her in. Thank you, Officer Arroway. Mr. Gibbons waved his hand. No questions, Your Honor. What do you mean? Nothing? Mallory's voice was a frayed wire. You can't argue with technology. He sank back into the chair and rubbed his prosthetic knee. But no one asked if I did it, she said, her voice a hoarse whisper. Wouldn't matter, he shook his head. Look at them, they've made up their minds. The jurors tapped their screens. Mallory wanted to yell, to stop them. Why wouldn't they listen? If only one would look her way, cast a sympathetic eye. A light above the lead juror flashed pale green. Judge Daniels coughed as he glanced at his screen. You may read the results. The juror stood, shoulders stooped and face unshaven. He kept his eyes glued to the results as he read. In the case of Mallory Green versus Samantha Border, we, the jury, find the defendant guilty of premeditated murder. An invisible force seemed to kick Mallory, letting loose a hailstorm of locusts striking the pit of her stomach. Had she heard that right? How is this possible? No, it couldn't be right. She spun around. Mr. Gibbons wiped his brow. Sorry about that. Am I going to jail? No, of course not. He lowered his voice. They can't leave you around in case you try again. Death penalty? She stared at him, a belt squeezing her chest. Swift shallow pants. She had to get out of there. The exit was only a few feet away. One step, two. There had to be a mistake. A glance around the audience, but no friends. Only scowls. They were convinced. But there, in the back corner of the courtroom, how could Mallory have missed her before? A pair of peacock-green eyes stared at her. The left side of Samantha Border's lips curled up. A camera swiveled above the back gallery wall, focusing on Mallory. The red light winked. 
recording the heat riding through her cheeks, the tension flooding her neck. Above the camera, the words, Prevention Saves Lives, scrolled across a smudged screen. The bailiff pushed Mallory through the steel doors. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Rachel's. Rachel, thank you so much. And Setsu, thank you. Thank you so much indeed. So next up is the end of the month. It's our good friend, Mr. JJ Campanella, with his science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and mucilaginous aerofloth, my melodiously corbinaceous listeners, and welcome to this August 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this grotesquely maladaptive science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Let's not waste any time. First story of the night. If you had any doubt that we are now living in a science fiction universe of the future, this story will reinforce that our world is getting, well, strange. Dr. Kit Parker of Harvard, along with scientists from the University of Illinois, University of Michigan, and Stanford University, got together to create a biohybrid life form. What is that? Well, it's just what it sounds like. It is a life form that is partly artificial and partly biological. Um, yeah, I guess for comic geeks out there, it's a little like Cyborg from the DC Universe, or, hey, the $6 million man for you older folks. Except more confusing because... Parker and company did not start out with an animal and add to it or fix it. They pretty much created their own hybrid animal. If you met Parker's lab-created critter at the beach, you'd swear you saw a baby manta ray. In fact, the tiny, flexible swimmer is the product of a team of diverse scientists. They have built the most successful artificial animal yet. This technology opens the door to a much wider array of lifelike robots and artificial intelligence. One day, Parker saw his daughter entranced by watching the stingrays at the New England Aquarium in Boston. He wondered if he could engineer a muscle that can move in the same sinuous, undulating fashion. The quest for material led to creating an artificial ray with a 3D-printed rubber body. Parker and company reinforced the soft rubber body with a 3D-printed gold skeleton, so thin that it functions like cartilage. The group adapted rat heart cells so they could respond to light by contracting. Then they were grown into a carefully arranged pattern onto the rubber and around the gold skeleton. The newly engineered animal responds to light so well that the scientists were able to guide it through an obstacle course 15 times its length using strong and weak light pulses. Parker writes, quote, Our ray outperformed existing locomotive biohybrid systems in terms of speed, distance traveled, and durability. It was actually six days. And demonstrated the potential of self-propelled, phototactically activated tissue-engineered robots, unquote. Science of this type is fundamental for engineering special-purpose creations, such as artificial worms that sniff out and eat cancer, or bionic body parts for those who have suffered accidents or diseases. Well, again, like the $6 billion man. Or imagine having little swimmers in your system that rush to the side of a medical emergency, such as a stroke. The promise of sensor-rich soft tissue frees robots to move more easily and yet not be cut off from needed input. Sensitized robots made of soft tissues could perform without the energy-sucking heaviness of metal or the artificial barriers of hard plastic exoskeletons. Thanks to this cross-disciplinary applied science, entrepreneurs in the next few years will be able to play on the border of what is life, what alive means, and frankly, what life can be. Next story. More medical engineering stuff. Will we soon be able to fix severed nerves? Maybe even severed spinal columns? Maybe, but the odds are definitely getting better. 
Dr. Laura Ballerini of the International School for Advanced Studies in Italy has just published a paper in the journal Science Advances this month, which suggests that carbon nanotubes just might fit the bill for helping nerves to regrow correctly and reconnect after damage. Ballerini says that, quote, immediately after a spinal column injury, there will be a scar that will physically block any kind of reconnection of the original fibers. But we might be able to circumvent such lesions. The idea is to induce the neurons next to the scar to make new connections and take sort of a detour to reach the target, unquote. A variety of approaches to encourage spinal neurons to regrow are being investigated because of this. One of these methods is to provide a scaffold of carbon nanotubes between the separated spinal sections to encourage the cells to connect. Ballerini says the carbon nanotubes might be the perfect scaffolding material because neurons seem to like growing on it. She states, quote, This material has always proven to be extraordinarily good for growing neurons and improving their ability to reconnect, probably because carbon nanotubes are both tissue-friendly and conductive. They can stimulate electrical connections and electrical activity in neurons, unquote. And actually, Ballerini's team has previously shown that 2D carbon nanotube surfaces were able to support neuronal growth and synapse formation and even electrical excitability in culture. For such materials to work in the body, though, they have to be 3D, not 2D. Luckily, Ballerini's co-author, Maurizio di Crescenzi, a physicist at the University of Rome, had created just such a 3D nanotube mesh meant for, well, among other things, cleaning seawater after oil spills. Ballerini tested the 3D mesh for its ability to encourage neuron reconnection between two separated spinal tissue explants in culture. Normally, when placed more than 300 microns apart, explants like that can rarely reconnect on their own. Fewer than 30% of her control explant pairs reestablished electrical connectivity. But when the carbon nanotube scaffold was placed between the slices, more than 90% of the explant pairs reconnected. Without the scaffold, neurons emerging from the explants were organized into thick bundles. With the scaffold, on the other hand, the neuron grew in a more random, kind of sprawling fashion, following the labyrinthine network of the nanotubes. Ballerini says, quote, The 3D structure seems important because the density of connections will be increased and therefore the regeneration potential and the strength of the connections with other neural cells will be improved. Essentially, the 3D mesh seems to increase the probability that neurons can find partners, unquote. A control 3D scaffold made from a biocompatible but non-conductive polymer did not improve the connections. If the carbon nanotube mesh were to be used clinically, it would need to be tolerated by the body. So Ballerini and her colleagues are now testing the material in living rats. They implanted meshes into the cortexes of adult rat brains and examined the animals four weeks later. Both neurons and microglia had grown into the mesh, said Ballerini, and tissue inflammation was minimal, which is good. That was an important first step to show that there was some biocompatibility with mammals. However, the really important test is putting the nanotubes into an actual injured spinal cord to see what the result is. Ballerini has yet to do this in mice, but I think that is next on her agenda. And we will see how that goes. Next up, Dolly the Sheep returns. Sort of. For a long time, geneticists wondered whether a cloned animal was really just well, a lousy carbon copy of the original. But it took them a while to find out whether that was true or not. All right, what do I mean by a lousy copy? Well, for one, would the clone's life be shorter? Proponents of the idea that the length of the telomere determines when you die of old age have believed for a long time that clones are born automatically with shorter telomeres. Remember, telomeres are the ends of chromosomes. So, will they die at a younger age? Is that true? Well, new research published in July in the journal Nature Communications 
suggests an animal's clone using somatic cell nuclear transfer, SCNT, aged normally, and no faster than control animals. Dr. Kevin Sinclair from the University of Nottingham and colleagues measured the metabolic, cardiac, and muscular skeletal health of 17 cloned sheep aged 7 to 9 years old, including four from the same cell line that gave rise to Dolly, finding that the cloned animals showed no signs of disease related to the actual cloning process. Way back in 1996, when I was a youngling, Sir Ian Wilmot, Keith Campbell, and colleagues at the University of Scotland created Dolly by somatic cell nuclear transfer, transferring the nucleus of a female mammary gland cell to an unfertilized egg cell whose nucleus had been removed. And the result was Dolly. Dolly suffered from osteoarthritis and died at the age of six from progressive lung disease. 20 years after Dolly's birth, somatic cell nuclear transfer has since been used to clone more than 20 mammalian species, including human cells. Campbell died back in 2012, and Sinclair continued to study the cloned sheep. Sinclair says, quote, We wanted to establish once and for all that cloned animals that survive and make it into old age are normal, unquote. Sinclair has now conducted a thorough health assessment of 17 cloned sheep, again, aged 7 to 9, four of which were generated from Dolly's tissue. The researchers measured the animal's muscular skeletal health, metabolic health, blood pressure, and compared that with a group of five- to six-year-old non-cloned sheep. Sinclair's team also conducted MRIs on the animal's joints to look for signs of the osteoarthritis that afflicted Dolly. Like the non-cloned animals, the cloned animals had normal blood sugar, blood pressure, and insulin sensitivity. While the team noted evidence of mild osteoarthritis in some of the cloned animals, the sheep did not show any clinical signs of the joint disease. The findings suggest that sheep cloned using somatic cell nuclear transfer appear to age normally and at no greater risk of joint disease or other chronic conditions of aging. Sinclair concludes with, quote, This study reveals that somatic cell nuclear transfer can generate relatively healthy sheep that seem to age normally. However, we still have to keep in mind that the vast majority of nuclear transfer embryos die before reaching adulthood due to a variety of defects. Embryo and neonatal loss in generating animal clones are a real concern for us, but those that survive to adulthood for all intents and purposes appear perfectly normal. Unquote. Onward and upward. Next story. Well, I have to admit my gut has certainly been a cause for me to despair, but I've never even considered that anything living in my gut might be aiding and creating that despair. What do I mean by that insanity? Well, in the latest twist on how bacteria influence host biology, new research shows that gut microbes cause symptoms of quote-unquote despair. Researchers have now connected harmless gut microbes with obesity, malnutrition, heart disease, and immune function. Even more surprising, perhaps, is how these microbes influence our central nervous system. New research suggests that different microbiomes connect with different behaviors, and the changes that they cause might even promote multiple sclerosis. Dr. Patricia Casaccia of the Icon School of Medicine in New York studies myelin repair and neuronal damage in multiple sclerosis. She and her team became curious about how antibiotics affect mouse models of MS. So they set up some experiments and began treating mice with antibiotics by force feeding. By serendipity, her group noticed behavioral differences during force feeding one specific strain of mice. Some mice began to avoid social situations and display behavior characteristics of depression. She reported her follow-up work in the journal eLife in April. Kasachia learned that antibiotics were not responsible for the depressive-like phenotype. In fact, non-obese diabetic mice developed social withdrawal and symptoms of despair 
following force feeding with saline alone and no antibiotics. The turning point came when Kasasha's team performed force feeding with an antibiotic cocktail proven to deplete gut microbes. When they did that, they prevented the observed behavioral changes they'd seen before and indicated that gut microbes were necessary to bring about depressive behavior after the force feeding. To understand their observation with greater detail, Kasatcha's team used sequencing to identify the populations of microbes that differed before and after saline force feeding in the mice. She found increased microbes from the Lactospirichiae and the Ruminococciae families. Her group then transferred the microbiota from animals with depressive-like behavior into germ-free mice and found that when these microbial families were abundant, the recipient mice developed depression and social avoidance. She concluded with this, quote, We were amazed, but our experiments support that specific microbial communities have the ability to transfer depressive-like symptoms, unquote. But they were not finished there. They wanted to know how the gut bacteria could cause neuronal changes in the brain. Casaccia says, quote, We found that the bacteria have the ability to generate metabolites that can travel through the bloodstream and reach the brain where they tend to favor expression of depressive-like symptoms and impair the ability of oligodendrocyte progenitors to differentiate into myelin-forming cells, unquote. One of those metabolites is a chemical called cresol, which stood out for its high levels in the depressive mice. In cultured oligodendrocytes, the team found that cresol prevented myelin gene expression and differentiation of progenitors into myelin-forming cells. That result suggested a possible link between the central nervous system transcription changes, gut microbes, and the neurogenerative disease multiple sclerosis, which is characterized by poor myelination. Remember, myelin is that fatty chemical that's needed to speed nerve signals along the length of your neuronal axons. Without myelin, nerve signals get slowed down to a dangerous level. Casaccia concludes that, quote, it is important to study the gut-brain interactions. The intestinal microbiota have the ability to secrete neuroactive chemicals, trigger immune responses, modulate drug efficacy, or shape host physiology at distant sites. These microbe-gut-brain interactions may play a role in initiating or contributing to the pathology in many psychiatric or neurodegenerative diseases, unquote. Okay, you have probably heard the next story on your local news. What was the, what's the next story? <laughs> Flossing is pointless and does not help your teeth at all. Well, let's get back to that. An investigation spearheaded by the Associated Press, of all people, has turned up a woeful lack of evidence pointing to a tangible health benefit related to the U.S. government's recommendation that Americans floss every day for maximal dental health. Um, seriously, we are listening to reporters' opinions on scientific medical matters? What's next? Grocery clerks giving their opinions on court cases? Seriously, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of flossing, but this seems a bit extreme as an excuse to stop. Let's continue. August 2nd, floss-hating AP reporter Jeff Don wrote, quote, The evidence for flossing is weak and very unreliable, of very low quality, and carries a moderate to large potential for bias, unquote. The government has issued the flossing advice since 1979 in a Surgeon General's report and its dietary guidelines for Americans, which must be supported by scientific evidence. Professional dentistry associations and thousands of dentists throughout the country have made the same recommendation for decades. The last year, when the AP asked the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the USDA to provide scientific evidence to support the recommendation, the agencies admitted that the benefits of flossing have never been adequately studied in rigorous scientific experiments. And when the government released the latest dietary guidelines for Americans this year, 
the flossing recommendation was conspicuously absent. Don says, quote, Studies that looked at the health effects of flossing seem poorly designed, too small, or improperly conducted, unquote. Representatives of the American Dental Association and the American Academy of Periodontology acknowledged the weakness of the published evidence pointing to flossing benefits, but they largely stuck to their existing advice. AAP President Dr. Wayne Aldridge stated, quote, it's like building a house and not painting two sides of it. Ultimately, two sides are going to rot away quicker, unquote. Now that statement is weak, but my justification for continuing to floss is probably just as weak. Simply put, there is no evidence at all that floss does harm, and weak evidence for flossing being helpful. That doesn't necessarily mean that flossing is ineffective. It just means that there isn't any positive evidence for flossing being effective. Flossing is a low-risk, low-cost procedure, and because clinical studies show it's effective when it's done well, we just don't have much hesitation to say, go ahead and do it. It's not going to hurt. Okay, many of you are laughing at this point, thinking Campanella is at it again. Okay, here is a better reason to floss, whether we think it does any good or not. Unlike a toothbrush, which cleans the tops and outer surfaces of the teeth and gums, floss is an interdental cleaning. It's designed specifically to clean the tight spaces between the teeth and the gap between the base of the teeth and the gums. These are places that a toothbrush can't reach. And while antimicrobial mouthwash can kill bacteria that form plaque, it can't take out the stubborn tartar and the bits of food that lodge themselves into these places. So you need flossing. I mean, even if it isn't effective in the long term as a, a dental health agent, it helps to keep your teeth clean. Well, apparently not according to Mr. Don, but common sense must tell you to just not give it up. Next story. It may be that E. coli is on the way out. Since the 1970s, the workhorse of the Molecular Genetics Laboratory has been E. coli. It is not only used in laboratories to express genes into proteins from every species you can imagine. There are dozens of different strains that are used, sold, and traded in the scientific community. Even giant corporations use E. coli to make commercial proteins like recombinant human insulin or the various human blood clotting factors. It's easy to grow, easy to manipulate, and generally pretty safe. It grows fast overnight, but up to 90% of experimental time may be tied up waiting for your E. coli to grow. Dr. George Church of Harvard decided he was sick of waiting for E. coli to grow for his experiments, so he started looking elsewhere for faster-growing bacteria. He says, quote, we became obsessed with getting a faster generation time because as speed improves, molecular biology gets easier, unquote. He reported his work in this month's issue of the journal Bioprescription. In an effort to make his experiments faster, Church recently developed Vibrio nitrogens. This is a non-pathogenic free-living bacteria with the fastest generation time known and he has developed this into a genetically tractable host organism that can be used in a laboratory. He states that, quote, we would like to make Vibrio nitrogens into an industrial organism along the lines of, but in some ways superior to E. coli, unquote. The genome of the Vibrio consists of two chromosomes, totaling about 5 million base pairs, about a half a million base pairs bigger than the genome of E. coli. It has an average generation time of 14.8 minutes, which Church's team observed at 37 degrees Celsius. And that is 2.1 times faster than E. coli. Ha! And you thought Usain Bolt was fast. Church was amazed at this. He says, quite frankly, I'm surprised that anything can grow this fast. If you look at theoretical rates of protein synthesis, for example, this seems beyond what most of us expected, unquote. Not only does Vibrio grow fast, but unlike most industrial E. coli strains, 
It grows well on sucrose, that is table sugar, which is an inexpensive and environmentally friendly growth medium. Now, Church's team is looking for clues into the Vibrio's genome that can explain the organism's record-setting growth rate. Next story. If you live in Florida, watch out for rodents of unusual size. Despite the cute reference that I made to the Princess Bride there, I'm quite serious. Dr. Elizabeth Congdon of Bethune-Cookman University in Florida warned other scientists at the 53rd Annual Conference of the Animal Behavior Society on August 3rd that capybaras, giant rodents native to South America, could become Florida's next big invasive species. She said, quote, Capybaras have now been introduced to northern Florida. There are enough similarities to Nutria to warrant a closer look at the South American newcomers, unquote. Nutria, by the way, are large invasive rodents from South America that have caused havoc in many U.S. states. They're about the size of rats, though. According to Congdon, there are currently about 50 capybara loose in northern Florida. Now, I am not a naturalist, but I am told that 50 is not yet an invasion. But these animals are the world's largest rodent, growing up to 50 kilograms or more. In the wild, the semi-aquatic animals live in social groups and forests that can be near bodies of fresh water. They're herbivores that can subsist on a wide variety of vegetation from grass to tree bark. And they reproduce at a pretty good clip, averaging about four or even up to eight pups per litter. They look like a cross between a pig and a giant rat, but some people in Florida decided they'd make good pets until they wanted to get rid of them, and then they just let them loose in the wild. Oh, yeah. Great. Welcome to Florida. The loose capybaras are not automatically defined as an invasive species yet. An invasive species causes, quote, environmental or economic harm or harm to human health, unquote. Congdon has been studying the potential for capybaras to become invasive, and they've been looking for similarities to nutria. Nutria were first imported to the U.S. in the early 1900s, and they were farmed for fur in Louisiana, but they escaped. Some were also purposely released as weed mitigators, and they quickly established themselves in Louisiana's many swamps. Efforts to control the animals, such as hunting them down, have largely failed. Congdon says, quote, Coyotes and dogs hunt nutria, but nothing in the world, save humans, is big enough to kill a capybara. Capybara predators include anaconda, puma, and jaguar, none of which are found in North America, unquote. But Congdon doesn't advocate wildlife managers killing all the capybaras in Florida. And this has nothing to do with sentimentality or being a bleeding-heart tree-hugger. She has completely selfish reasons for wanting to protect the capybaras. First, they will help her research because the animals represent, quote, an opportunity to study the process of invasion, unquote. Second, she doesn't want to go to South America to study the beasts anymore. She says, quote, a population in Florida would be a lot easier for me to access than the one I studied in Venezuela as a graduate student. Yes, we want to keep them from spreading, but can we please not kill them all so I can study them, unquote? Last story of the night involves the birds and the bees and plants and viruses. Well, maybe not birds so much. Viruses are sneaky little buggers. They don't eat, they don't make energy, and they can't reproduce without a host. Pretty much their only goal is to reproduce more of themselves once they find the correct host species cell. And as I said, they can be pretty sneaky about making more viral copies. Dr. John Carr of University of Cambridge reported August 11th in the journal Plus Pathogens that some plant viruses are particularly sneaky. Instead of destroying their leafy hosts, one common plant virus takes a more backhanded approach to, well, domination. It makes infected plants more attractive to pollinators, ensuring itself a continued supply of virus-susceptible plant hosts for generations to come. 
Plants give off cocktails of volatile chemicals that send signals to pollinators, predators, and other plants. Carter's team found the tomato plants infected with cucumber mosaic virus gave off a different cocktail of these chemicals than non-infected plants, and that bumblebees preferred the infected plants brew of aerosolized phytohormones. That's a small constellation for plants that have been stunted and blemished by cucumber mosaic virus. When infected tomato plants relied on self-fertilization, they produced fewer seeds on their own than their healthy counterparts. But when bumblebees helped out, infected plant seed production matched healthy ones. Carr says, quote, The virus benefits, too. By ensuring that sick plants can still reproduce, those genes enabling susceptibility to the virus will stay in the population. And plants that are resistant to the virus can't gain the foothold that they would have if all the sick plants died too soon, unquote. The team also found that cucumber mosaic virus changes plants' chemicals by disrupting their natural defenses against disease. Normally, plants can identify when bits of foreign genetic material, like those from virus, have worked their way inside. Specialized immunoprotective enzymes snap into action and chop up the foreign invaders. Carr found that a cucumber mosaic virus protein called 2B disrupts this process by binding to the silencing molecules so that they can't do their job. That lets the virus infect the plant more easily, and it also changes the way the plant turns its genes on and off. When Carr tested a virus that didn't have the gene for the 2B protein, the infected plant didn't shift the chemicals they gave off like the plants infected with the fully functioning virus did. This is all pretty cool because it provides a link between the 2B protein and the volatile chemical production. It's a major finding that can help scientists to better understand how viruses manipulate their hosts. Carl warns that, yes, this is all kind of cool, but, quote, further research is needed to convincingly show that the increased pollination is really a fitness benefit for the plant. Even though the infected plants produce more seeds, those seeds could be smaller and less likely to germinate and the shift in chemical production could lure aphids, which transmit the virus from plant to plant, just as much as bumblebees, unquote. It's interesting that this may be another example of viruses actually doing some good in the world, but we will see how the long-term research goes to answer that question. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, keep flossing. Watch out for those rodents of unusual size. Also, be careful what you step on down at the shore this summer. It could be a biohybrid swimming there. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Very good, Jim. Thank you, Squire. Thank you. Always on time as well, man. Just no messing with the guy. Thank you so much, Jim. So next up is the main fiction, last part of the show. It is Rocket Surgery by Effie Cyberg, originally appeared in Analog Magazine. Effie Cyberg is a fantasy and science fiction writer. Her stories can be found in the Women Destroy Science Fiction Special Edition of Lightspeed Magazine, Galaxy Edge, Analog, Podcastle, amongst others. She is a graduate of the Tau Toolbox 2013 and a member of Codex and a reader at Tor.com. Effie lives in San Francisco, originally an upcoming, but not presently, near a giant sculpture of a pink bunny head with a skull in its mouth. She likes to make sculpted cakes and bad puns. Find her online at EffieCyberg.com and there's a Twitter handle as well. This story is narrated by Stephanie Morris. Stephanie is a professional fangirl by dear, and your friendly neighbourhood, not quite librarian staffing the circulation desk by night. She has narrated stories for Pseudopod, Podcastle Escapepod and Cast of Wonders. Guest blog on subjects ranging from new books to zombie turkeys. And performed Shakespeare in a handful of weird churches until she suppresses her inner perfectionist enough create to create a website you can find her at and there's a little Twitter handle there as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Rocket Surgery by Effie Cyberg. We'd tested plenty of missiles before, 
but Teeny was the only one that convulsed when we cut him open. Oh, your viewers need more background? Okay, I'll back up a bit. Let me tell you, kids today don't know their history. Even locked up in here for the past ten years, I can tell. No education. Good thing you're getting the real story out. Now, this was back when Hamazi was the supreme dictator of the Embridian Republic, enemy number one. The whole military was buzzing about overthrowing him, and General Piddix, I guess he's presidential candidate Piddix now, wanted to make a name for himself. So the weapons division got a lot of money to make something spectacular. Previous missiles had AIs, of course. Precision navigation with plasma propulsion that could turn on a dime, facial recognition to find the target and follow them. The Azimuth 5900 could detect genetic debris to avoid hitting decoys, and the Tarzan A800's nanoscales could rearrange to make the outer shell take on any shape to blend in with its surroundings, so if it needed to land to gather more intel, it could camo without suspicious shadows giving it away. But Teeny was something else altogether. No, of course that wasn't the official name, but Predator TVACEW34W doesn't exactly trip off the tongue. So can I continue? It was just the beginning of the new wetware computing. Nanotech could only get us so far, so instructions were entwined in ADNA, the quickly standardizing format for artificial DNA, and plasti neurons wound their way through plasma rockets and payload decompressors and senso patches, all within a state-of-the-art nanoscale morphing skin that was even higher res than the Tarzans. Wetware was unpredictable, but it sure was efficient. Teeny was only the size of a golden retriever. Me and the other gals, we were in charge of the final testing, coding up the VR simulators for the finished bombs to see what they'd do. But for Teeny, the first one ever made of wetware, this was something new. It was like rocket surgery, skin flayed open and held with clips so we could hook the sims to the plasti neurons, systems looking like life support threaded through and plugged in to maintain the beat of electrical impulses, and the longest manual we'd ever received on how not to kill the bomb in the process. We thought it was kind of funny, to tell you the truth, the idea of killing a machine that was built to kill others. But I've got to tell you, by the end, we saw Teeny like our own little baby, and we made darn sure we didn't kill him by accident. When we first cut him open to plug him in, Teeny convulsed. He twitched with the first slice, and the more we cut, the more the external nanoscale surged, changing his exterior to look like a tan desert rock, and then a small pile of bricks, and then a fifty-pound tuna. His on-the-ground camo looked pretty good up close. We went through the manual to figure out what we'd done, and couldn't find anything to help us. Betty said that maybe because it was wetware instead of hardware, we need to treat it more like it was alive, a he instead of an it, and maybe he's in pain when we cut. We all thought she'd gone bananas, but the next day she'd rustled up an IV with some dihydromorphine from home. She'd been taking care of her husband and had plenty extra. She stabbed it into one of Teeny's ion channels, no small feat, since he was still spasming so bad, and opened the drip, and sure enough, the convulsions quieted down. Well, we thought that with behavior like this, we should probably tell people about it before we start the usual course of testing— so we sent hollows to the research team and to General Piddix. The research team was excited, but said that wetware was so unpredictable that they didn't have more guidance to give us, but please keep noting down what happened and proceed. Piddix, on the other hand, quickly replied with, Don't care, as long as it does its missions right. Stop fucking around with scientific theory and fast-track this. Tells you a lot about him, doesn't it? People called him General Piddless behind his back. We programmed the sims with increasingly complex scenarios and watched Little Teeny march right through them as long as we managed the painkiller drip. He never failed a mission, but the wetware really did have its quirks. The first time we saw something was up was when we coded in the nursery school mission. In our sim, the religious extremist group, we based it loosely on those nut jobs that were rolling around D.C. at the time, you know the ones, had a terror cell hidden under the basement of a nursery school. 
We had their weapon shipment staged in boxes of formula and diapers, and we coated up explosives to be hidden in the storehouses full of hollows for the kids and replacement parts for the nanny bots. Teeny caught us all by surprise that day. We expected a pretty standard M.O., get in, watch the schedules to find a time when the kids were out and the nup jobs were in, and blammo. We'd coated it up to make sure that wouldn't happen for a few days in the sim. But before we knew it, Teeny'd set himself up to look like a box of bot parts, then found the standard control net that let you repair the nanny bots and injected it with a virus. We'd just written the bots with basic off-the-shelf programming, but what do you know? They all got up and ushered the kids outside in broad daylight, even brought them down the road to an ice cream shop. Well, a shell of an ice cream shop. We'd only programmed the outside. And when the kids were all safely out of blast radius, only then did the blammo happen. Blew the compound to virtual smithereens, and from a location that minimized additional damage from the blown explosives in the warehouse. We didn't know it could do that. Linda was working from home that day with the flu and had patched into the sim from bed. She'd lost her voice, so had turned off her comm and instead was typing in. And when she typed, Good job, Teeny! We were even more surprised to see an answer. Up in the left-hand corner of the VR view, right where no interface element should be, we saw the words, Thank you. But the bomb did not explode. They were written in white, in an old-fashioned font we'd certainly never put into the sim. And Teeny wasn't supposed to be able to talk. Nothing in the manual said anything about that. We were all a bit spooked, but at the same time excited to actually talk to a test subject. So I typed back in the normal part of the UI, Your sensors did just what they were supposed to. We just took out the explosive material for testing. Testing? Yes, this is a simulation, to see what you'll do in the real world. The simulation is not real. I see. Did I do good? I wrote, You did so much good. After thinking about it for a moment, I added in some imaginary evils that this nut job group was planning. Teeny, the real Teeny, not the digital one in the sim, gave a little bzz at that. His nanoscales fluttered. Piddix had said to fast track as long as it did its job, but we contacted the research team anyway. Taking initiative to bug the program, talking to us, bzzing. This all seemed like more than just a wetware quirk. But they responded with the same thing. They didn't really know what the wetware would do. The only other wetware bots in circulation were the fake pets for rich people, and those each came with their own unprogrammable personality. Most of the pets were small and cute and devoted, but every so often one would come off the line with a mean glint in its eye and a tendency to bite. They'd checked, and there was no bug in the programming or a flaw in the wetware itself. That was just it. Wetware was unpredictable. Teeny gave that same bzz and nanoscale flutter after we complimented his performance in his next mission, taking out a fake dictator we made up, and again after blowing up an enemy sub as it was surfacing to put out its own missile. Neither bzz seemed to do any damage, so we eventually figured it was like he was purring with satisfaction at a job well done. If the wetware pets can do it, why not a precision-guided missile? Teeny asked, Will this do good? After each VR mission, he was really growing on us, and we started taking turns writing up what messes he would be preventing. Not just that the death of that dictator was a good thing, but we'd also type in a story about a little girl who would now be able to go to school safely and grow up to be a great doctor and halt a plague in its tracks, or how carefully blowing up a chemical munitions plant, yes, carefully, meant that the tree frogs in the enemy's target bomb zone would get to live on and keep the malaria-bearing mosquitoes in check. He'd make the little bzz sound each time. The more mission sims we sent him on, the more questions he started to ask, Will this do good? was followed by, What would do more good? And Linda who'd been a philosophy major before she got her head on straight and switched to testing, talked to him about Aquinas and Aristotle and Camus and Kant and goodness knows who else before we told her to stop filling his rom with such nonsense. But a philosophy twaddle or no, our boy was clever. He kept getting more creative in his solutions. I think my favorite test was the mission to take out the number two in the anarcho-green extremist group. 
Once he got to their compound, instead of finding the militia hippie, he plugged himself into their net. We had to code it up as he went along, and he hunted down the number one through old-school message boards and cryptoed messages. He waited until both the number one and two were in range, then got the both of them with one beautiful explosion. This will do more good, yes? he'd asked when the VR reset, his old-fashioned white text hovering at the left of my vision. I'd nodded, almost too proud to speak, and exhausted from the race of building the nets before he got into them. Even more good, I said, and that night me and the gals went out for beers to cheer our genius boy. The next morning when we got back to the test lab, Teeny had left us a message. The number three will keep the group going. It is not ended. I must go back. No, I wrote. But your mission is ended. You blew up, remember? What happens to me when I blow up? You... I stopped typing into the sim. How do you explain to a robot that he can only be used once and is dead and gone after? You complete the mission when you blow up. But what happens to me after? That's it. You aren't anymore. There's no you left. Just like the number one and number two, they're not left. That's right. Why shouldn't they be left? Because they were evil, remember? They were doing bad things. What if... His writing hesitated. What if I want to be left after? In the real world. That's just not how that works, I said. But then I can't do more good. He paused. I thought it was good to do more good. It is. And by doing this, you'll be doing more good than any one of us could ever do. Another pause. I see. What's it like, not being left? Is it unpleasant? Too much philosophy, that was his problem. I'd have to have a chat with Linda. No, it's like... Like you float away into nothingness, and you don't need to worry about the world anymore. It's not unpleasant at all. He was quiet for a long time, but of course still passed the next sim with flying colors. Me and the gals, we started to plan a little graduation ceremony for him in the testing lab for when he was ready to go into action. Nothing fancy, like what the top brass does, but then the top brass would never have a ceremony for a bomb. We were about two weeks out from it when General Piddix and five of his aides strode into the lab. He never came to the lab. Time's up, he said. The man always sounded like he was gargling rocks. Linda was the one that stepped up to him. We're not done. We still have seven more sims to take him... I mean, take it through. Don't care. Bomb's been hitting the targets, yes? He shifted his toothpick to the other side of his mouth. Well, yes, but... And it's been performing the camouflage maneuvers? Gathering good intelligence to optimize the hit? Yes, but the mechanisms of the hit are still a bit... fluid. Good enough. We need it now. He looked around the lab until he found Teeny, tubes and wires sticking out of him like a coma patient. Is it going to blow if we take those wires out? Well, no, but... Good. The Embridians keep shooting our azimuths out of the sky, so we need something with better camo, and there's no Tarzans left. Hamazi's given us a gift. He'll be very vulnerable for the next three hours, and we need to hit him now. He started yanking out wires, and Teeny convulsed like he'd done on that first day. Stop that! cried Linda. You're hurting him! He gave her a look that would pulverize a small building. It's a bomb, he growled. Not a kitten. What's wrong with you? His steely gray eyes swept through the rest of the beeping machinery in the lab. So I stepped in. Top brass always responded better to fancy words. General, with all due respect, let us give you the procedures to ensure optimal performance. He grunted and agreed. Off Teeny went, rolling away on the little cart the general's aide had brought. We offered to brief Piddix with our full notes and recommendations, but he grunted again that as long as the bomb hit the targets and the sims without detection, he didn't give a flying fuck and to get the hell out of his way. They'd do the full debrief for the next one, where they actually needed the extra functionality. He always was an asshole. Tell your viewers not to vote for him. But anyway, our little boy was off to do good in the world. We'd sent off other bombs in the past, of course, but we'd never felt this kind of pride. T 
Cheney was our bomb. He was smart. He would minimize civilian casualties and do more than the military ever imagined. And once that happened, there'd be more teenies to make sure any time our military needed, we could strike with intelligence. Of course, those would be fully tested. We popped champagne that night, cheering our brilliant little boy. We all assumed he would hit Hamazi that day, and that it'd be that. The slippery bastard had survived more assassination attempts than anyone, and taking him out would be the best step to liberate the corrupt country. It was full of poor saps, starving and downtrodden and mostly hating the freedoms of right-thinking countries like us. I think we even had the guy to prop up there instead to make sure the new regime would be friendly. About two months later, with Hamazi still alive and kicking, we were in the lab doing a medicine to test out our own systems when a bunch of Pittock's men came in and hauled us all off to be court-martialed. You know what happened next. It's in the public record. You want me to tell it anyway? Fine. One of them cut our power right before eight more stormed into the lab. They grabbed each of us, two to one, marched us out and threw us in cells after, even though we'd done exactly as we were supposed to. They hauled in the research team, too. What happened with Teeny? Well, you ever wondered why I'm in this tech-free cell and you had to come in person to talk to me? Why they confiscated your smart pad and any recording devices and only gave you a pencil and some paper? At first I didn't even know what happened with him. Before they hauled me to this tech-free wing, I saw in the prison hollows that Hamazi went into a retirement home. A retirement home of all things! And his nephew took over. Now, I wouldn't say that the nephew was a particularly big fan of us, but the death to the pigs propaganda died out and he focused on his own country stuff for a while. He kicked out the old council and set up a constitutional monarchy with the parliament. And within a few years, the Ambridian Republic looked like it was in much better shape, with people getting fed and educated, and they started setting up peace treaties with countries left and right. Not us, though, but they left us be, and I guess that's fine. And of course, from that alone, we were all tried for treason. They assumed we had some ties with the Hamazi regime and purposely sent out a faulty bomb. Complete nonsense, of course. We were just doing our jobs, and it was Piddix who made it a rush job. Just covering his ass, really. But it takes more than the whiff of treason to get you locked up in a room with no screens, with real human guards coming to bring you food so you'd have no contact with bots. A few months after the Embridian regime changed, after I'd already been tried and sentenced and tossed away, I started seeing new pictures on the screens in my cell. Usually, the pics were all things to keep us prisoners docile, you know? Beaches and forests and puppies and whatnot. Anyway, one day my pics were a little bit different. I started getting pics of Hamazi's nephew signing peace treaties and Embridian villages getting airdrops of medical supplies and even pics of new schools being built. Now, I can't be sure exactly how Teeny did it. It might have been from him hacking into Hamazi's personal net and reprogramming his guard bots to shuffle him away, or giving intel to the nephew's guard box to help maneuver into power, or draining his bank accounts, or what. But I know it was him who made the change that he kept on working at it even after his propulsion system gutted out and he had to rely on his solar cells to keep going. What do you mean, how do I know? Well, let me tell you, it's how they decided I couldn't get any more access to tech. After those Embridian picks kept coming, every day for a few months, I got a little message. It was in the corner of the interface, where no text should be, and in a white, old-fashioned font, all it said was, did I do good? And there you go. Big thank you to Effie Cyberg for a great story, that excellent, 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 excellent. And Stephanie, thank you so much. Great narration, thank you. So that is today's show, end of the month. Like I say, a fun pack show there. Thank you, everyone who's kind of helped out there. Jeremy, big thank you to you, sir. I know you're kind of still on your travels there. Hopefully the time clock now is kind of adjusted and you're on basically normal time instead of that donkey wobbly time user on down there in Australia. So last bit before we go there, a little another shout out. Don't forget, we, 
we kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel again on funds. And I think I mentioned it last week. Not one person or new person kind of stuck their hand up and says, yeah, Tony, there's a couple of quid for you. Keep the show going. So please, you know what I mean? We, we kind of rely on your reliability. <laughs> One for a bit of that. That's why I That's why I give up writing, man. You know what I mean? You just tell. It doesn't work. But listen, we need funds. Help out there. It'd be fantastic. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Actually, not next week, the week after. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.